0: Today we are following in the works of Lee Strobel in his book A Case for Christmas as we ask the question, who is in the manger of Bethlehem? You may believe that you know the answer to that. I'm sure that you probably do. But this is material that may help you in working with friends who aren't there yet. Last Sunday we considered eyewitness evidence. The validity of long-term observation that the apostles And the authors of the Gospels had the power of an entire group of apostles and authors living and dying by what they experienced and believed with no exceptions. Hear that, with no exceptions. No one defected. No one contradicted. Each one lived and died for what they said they saw and heard and wrote about Jesus. And the reality that there were no credible eyewitnesses who could or did debunk the gospel accounts. Granted, there were people who chose not to believe, not to believe in Jesus or anything else, but no one revealed any credo- credible evidence to dismiss the record that the gospels give to us to this day. The challenges for us from last Sunday were this. We are eyewitnesses of Jesus' salvation if indeed we have surrendered our life to him. The gospel story is experienced in us. Are we living what we say we believe? Is our attitude for life built on what we say we believe? Are our behaviors expressing what we believe? Do our words tell the story of what we believe? And are those in agreement with each other? That was last Sunday. This morning we consider scientific evidence, and in particular the science of archaeology. The question we're asking is this. Does archaeology confirm or contradict the writings we have about Jesus Christ? Pray with me as we dive in to seek the answer to this question. Holy Father, many of us have come to fully believe what we read in the Bible, but we did not begin that way. There was a time when we either didn't know what the Bible said or we knew some things, but didn't understand or even believe fully what was written in those wonderful pages of Scripture. Remind us of this as we consider those in our lives who are not as far along on the road of faith. Help us to grow in our own pilgrimage this morning and help us to be gentle with those who are beginning their walk. May what we learn today be helpful for us and for them, for all of us together, especially to the goal of receiving Jesus as Savior and as Lord in our lives. In his name I pray this. Amen. Archaeology. Fascinating science. It is the study of human society primarily through the recovery and analysis of the material, culture, and environmental data that they, that is people, have left behind, which includes artifacts, architecture, biofacts, and cultural landscapes, end of quote. In other words, archaeology is the science of discovery, the discovery of people and their living and working places from times past. It is a tedious science. It requires careful planning, careful digging, and incredibly precise record-keeping of discovery. You cannot have ADHD and be an archaeologist. There's lots of wonderful things for people with ADHD. Thank goodness. But archaeology is not one of those areas. It is so time-consuming and requires tremendous focus all the time you're doing it. But let me be clear as we begin this this morning. Archaeology cannot verify or contradict everything that's written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But archaeology can verify whether or not their words about places and their locations are correct. Listen to this logic. If the historical and geographical points of a document are consistently accurate, then it can be logically assumed, key word, logically assumed, that the other things written in that document will also be accurate, even if they can only be verified by faith and the consequence of faith. Let me switch that phrase around, say it a different way that I think makes it more pungent for us. If the historical and geographical points of a document are inconsistent and inaccurate, then it can be logically assumed that the other things written in that document will also be inconsistent and inaccurate, no matter what they are based upon. Throughout the gospel, there are significant points of interest that archaeology can either confirm or deny. And in his book, A Case for Christmas, Lee Strobel raises several of those issues and addresses them in interviews with archaeologists and biblical historians that have worked on the front line of those studies. He refers to these as puzzles. I'll briefly mention two and dive into a third. The first puzzle, the census, the one that brought Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Many questions have been raised about the time, the manner, and the Roman leadership identified in the Gospels. They have been verified by archaeological digs. It's a great read, We're not diving into it all, but it's one of those puzzles that gets raised periodically. A second is the slaughter at Bethlehem. The travesty of Herod's slaughter of all the boys two years old and under after the Magi did not return to him and identify the location of the child king they were seeking. Even the story of the Magi has been altered by tradition. They didn't show up for nearly two years after the birth of Jesus. If you read the gospel accounts carefully, you'll read that by the time they appear, they come to a house where Mary and Joseph were dwelling. They're no longer in the stable. And why would, they, why would Herod at all want to kill two-year-olds and younger if indeed time had not lapsed from the apparent birth of Jesus to when the Magi showed up and didn't return to Herod Himself. Each of these puzzles, as well as many other puzzles, are questioned by skeptics and critics of Christianity, and the scriptures have been proven accurate by the science of archaeology over and over and over again. In fact, it's exciting for me to read this. Many non-believing archaeologists have come to faith in God and the scriptures and the person of Jesus As a result of their archaeological work, they went to prove it didn't happen, and it did. And their lives were changed. So let's dive deeper into one of these puzzles. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. In your pew Bible, it's page 1054. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, will begin with verse 1. We'll read it through we'll raise the points and we'll begin to dive into what they mean. John 5 beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time he asked him do you want to get well sir the invalid replied I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred while I am trying to get in someone else goes down ahead of me then Jesus said to him get up Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. That's the text. It begins with identifying a location in Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate. John 5, 2, the very first line. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. Is the Sheep Gate there? Well... The record of this gate goes back to the days of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple around 450 B.C. And in Nehemiah 3.1 we read, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place. The sheep gate existed long before the gospel. The sheep gate existed when John wrote his gospel. The sheep gate exists today. There's a picture of it. There it is. I went through it several times. Both Carolyn and I did several years ago. The Sheep Gate is a verifiable place known. It's been known for centuries. This was not an issue for skeptics or disbelievers. This was a place known for centuries and still today in Jerusalem. But the text continues. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, Or in other translations, Bethsada or Bethsaida. The pool wasn't there. wasn't there. And so it was raised as a great concern. There was no pool anywhere near the Sheep Gate that could be found. But John isn't finished. He mentions an architectural distinctive in addition to the pool. We read again. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Not only was there no pool, there were no colonnades, not even one, let alone five. This became one of the question points of the accuracy and the authenticity of John's gospel. That's important truth to state. We don't find a pool. We don't find the colonnades. Can we really trust John's gospel if those things are not there? Certainly if John is wrong about this, then John may have been wrong about other things too. The archaeologists went to work and they sought to discover what was under current day Jerusalem near the sheep gate and with spoons and toothbrushes in hand. Do you hear me? Spoons and toothbrushes in hand. They began to dig and brush away. After many, many, many months, of work they came to a point spoons and toothbrushes 40 feet below today's surface of the sheep gate and first they found the tops of five colonnades you can see them at the bottom of the picture there as they continued they eventually many feet later found the pool <laughs> this is great stuff Archaeology authenticated what the God, Apostle John had written in his gospel. The pool and the colonnades were unearthed. They were discovered. So if John can be trusted about what he's writing geographically and locationally, perhaps John can also be trusted with what he wrote about Jesus and faith and what's required. He certainly is trustworthy when it came to the pool and the colonnades. This is but one example of the harmony of biblical writing and the science of archaeology. There are countless numbers of these stories. I cut a few of them away for the sake of time today, but places that I was able with my wife to spend in Israel for an entire summer on sabbatical, and we went to several digs all around the country of Israel and saw things that had been questioned for years but now had been uncovered. One, I, I just have to say this. There was one that just thrilled the daylights out of me. There is in the Old Testament a story about the king of Arad. Arad had never been found. It's a Canaanite city, supposedly. But no one had ever found it. It was in the Negev. Negev is a desert. Not a desert, just sand, but rocks and sand and junk. Just a mess. And they uncovered these, these mounds that had been down there. They're called tells. And they had discovered writings... And architecture from the city of Arad for the first time. And as you read the Old Testament, you find that there was a gate where both Isaiah and Jeremiah stood on the threshold of the city of Arad. And we were able to stand on those same stones, recently found. Amazing. There's stories like this continuously going on throughout Israel. Clifford Wilson, an Australian archaeologist, has written this in his book rocks, relics, and biblical reliability. Quote, those who know the facts now recognize that the New Testament must be accepted as a remarkably accurate source book. End of quote. The science of archaeology has consistently verified the scriptures of both the Old and the New Testament. There has been nothing, and I'll repeat that, capital letters, nothing unearthed that has debunked any of the Bible's claims. There has only been verification by archaeology. There are people who still try to debunk, but do not have scientific evidence to prove that. But there's one more important aspect of John 5. Note in your Bible verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Find for me verse 4. Do you see it? No. There's a three, the little three. Then there's a parentheses and four, end of parentheses. And it's just verse three. Four is not there. What's going on here? Why is this happening? What happened to verse four? Verse four you can find in some translations. And it reads this. After the word paralyzed, the blind and the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters... From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first person into the pool after such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. End of verse 4. I remember hearing that story when I was a kid in Sunday school. Because when I was a kid in Sunday school, verse 4 was still there. What happened to it? Who made that decision? Well, archaeology discovered Newer manuscripts, that is, newer to the original, not newer to our day. And in the earliest manuscripts, verse 4 does not exist. And because of the integrity of the biblical scholarship that we are blessed with, they took that verse out, but usually put it in a footnote to say, this is what some manuscripts include, but the earliest ones do not. Why would they do that? Because the earlier manuscripts are closer to the original. And being closer to the original is what we want. If a manuscript is discovered that has, that's earlier and earlier and earlier, that has something different or something not included, we need to note that to be people of integrity with the scriptures. It was taken out because it didn't belong from the beginning. Because the belief is this. If it had been there from the original, it would still be there. But it was added by someone who was a scribe, probably to help them understand this thing about the stirring of the water. It didn't explain it. And while it may be true, it wasn't in the earliest documents. And so the integrity of the Christian community and those who are the scholars of our scripture has been upheld. And we have as close to the authentic scripture as you can have. In fact, I want to tell you this. This, is off, this isn't even in these notes. Oh, I love these cul de sacs. (laughs) We are so blessed to have a Bible that is so analyzed. It is so looked at, it is so questioned. There's so much discipline that goes in to try and show it's wrong or to make sure that it's absolutely right. Have at it, world, have at it. Go after the scripture. Because by doing that, it gets authenticated over and over and over again. It gets verified by so many things. By eyewitnesses who give their life for it and live for it. By archaeology that begins to show at least locations and geography and historical data can be verified. There is no classic book in the whole world that is more analyzed than the Bible. And there is no classic book in the whole world that shows itself authentic like the Bible does. If you want to read on it, it's not a good read. It's a research project. It's uh, evidence that demands a verdict, volume one, and evidence that demands a verdict, volume two. If you can't sleep at night, those are great books to read. It will put you to sleep quickly. Quickly. But Josh McDowell has written a powerful manuscript that really shows the authenticity of the Bible. Old and New Testament. Cul-de-sac over. We have in our Bible as accurate account of the originals as is possible today. So how do we apply this? Okay, so what? So you gave me this data today, interesting stuff. How does this help with my life? What does it have to say to me for living the rest of this day and this coming week? What can we take from this scientific evidence? Number one, or A, part A, science and scripture are not enemies of one another. Science and in particular the science of archaeology has been a major authenticator of what the Bible has given us regarding people, places, and dates. Science and the Bible are not in conflict with each other. They're getting at things in different ways and science can be applied to many things throughout the scripture. Secondly, Jesus and his first disciples left a record for us. A record for us to examine. A record for us to follow. Or not. Archaeology has uncovered what was left behind by them. Archaeology has uncovered places and other verifications made by them in the scriptures. Their footprints Their sayings, their lifestyle, have been the source of our inspiration and our salvation. And thirdly, Jesus and his disciples today leave a record. A record for others to examine, to follow, or not. Our lives leave a footprint Some of these forensic programs today remind us that we leave a record of our lives wherever we go. We can all be stalked because we leave a pathway behind us. Computer science reminds us that we leave a pathway for others to discover. Businesses collect our habits of websites that we visit to know how better to market to us. How do they know we have an interest in that? Because they have followed. We leave footprints. You may think you're safe and you've protected yourself. You have firewalls all around you. That's buzzword for protection, shells to keep people. I can pull up your name on the computer and it'll probably have your picture and tell me where you live and what you do. No one is immune from that anymore. We leave a footprint. Law enforcement confiscates our computers, our cell phones, our tablets, any electronic device we have to determine any criminal activity we may have been involved in. You have a computer and it's time to replace it. How do you get rid of it? How do you deal with a hard drive? well i drill a hole in it doesn't do the job there's phantom information there are shadows it's everywhere we leave a footprint or to put it in another term that doesn't create such paranoia <laughs> everybody, everybody's kind of turning off their phones and wanting to throw everything <laughs> away now <laughs> we leave awake Wherever we go, we leave a wake. I'm a boater. I grew up on boats. And as you drive a boat anywhere, you leave a wake. You enter a boat into a no-wake zone, you still leave a wake. There's residue behind us. How people have been affected. How we shook up their lives with the wake that we make. How we may have blessed them because they like to water ski. So we made a wake so they could ski. Or sometimes we make a wake and it throws the houseboat on behind us totally adrift. And it causes it to rock rock and roll and nobody wants that on a houseboat. We leave a wake wherever we go. And there are people who are watching us. Not because we're so fun to watch. But because people look at people. They listen to people. They want to understand what's driving them to say that or behave that way. We leave a wake behind us. It's important for us to know that. We leave a record. So consequently, may we be clearly aware of the footprints we leave for those who come after us. Are we leaving footprints or wakes of authentic faith or not? Are we leaving footprints or wakes of genuine grace? This not this, this. Is that what's behind us? Are they included? Footprints that honor and represent Jesus the Christ who said, I did not come to judge, I came to redeem. I came to bring life. I didn't take, came, come to, to smother it. I came to explode it in your lives. The abundant life is not just a flash of light that looks like a flat surface. It goes everywhere. That's what he wants. This is why we're praying to God to rain down his spirit on us and get us excited about the gospel that's verifiable and livable and life-transforming and changes our world. That's what's needed. Christ reveals himself through each of us and all of us together. That's his plan. So I end with this. Steve Green has written a lyric that sums it up. Listen. May all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light the way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. O oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May it be so. Pray with me. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to leave footprints, handprints, words and behaviors that honor you and lead others to you. Oh Father, help us. Help us to be faithful. Amen.